Alright gang, back to it. We're back between verses 5 and 6. Between verses 5 and 6, suddenly from verse 5 to verse 6, we blast forward, we go fast forward 2,000 years. And that's the mystery here. Not only the mystery of this chapter, but it's the mystery of prophetic history. The mystery of history. That's good. i write that down. The mystery of history. And that is that we jump ahead. We suddenly rush from verse 5. It tells us, She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron who is to rule, not that he did, but he will eventually, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne, Harpazo, caught up, raptured, and we saw that in the ascension of Jesus, born to Israel, born to be king, but he wasn't king. It was so confusing to the Jewish people. Here comes this self-proclaimed Messiah, and his own followers on the weekend of his death are going, what? Wait a minute, if he's truly Messiah, why is he dead? The Messiah of Old Testament scriptures is a king. He's going to overthrow. He's going to, as Psalm 2 told us, rule with a rod of iron. How is it that he's dead? Maybe he's not Messiah. But here was the mystery. Messiah was not dead for long. He resurrected. He came back to life. Forty days later, he ascended in full view of the twelve apostles. He, Harpazo, he was raptured up, taken up to God. And there is a second coming of the king. Also prophesied in the Old Testament, all the king prophecies, all the grand Messiah who will rule prophecies, are about the second time and not the first. Now you and I know that because we have hindsight. We can look back. The Jews in Jesus' day and even his own followers couldn't have seen that. They didn't understand it. It's almost like the, the, the two mountain situation. Maybe you've heard this example used before, but it's as if you're standing at, at one size mountain and a slightly larger mountain behind it. You can see the tip, the peak of that mountain over and behind it. And from where you stand, they look pretty close together. They could even be one mountain. But as you get closer and you go up that first mountain, which we'll say is the Old Testament times, the early prophecies, as you go up that first mountain, you get to the top and you realize that second mountain is way across a huge valley in between. What is that valley? It's the church age. The Old Testament prophets, Peter says, they looked into these things and they longed to know what this was about. How is this going to work out? How could Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 9, prophesy a great ruler in Messiah and in Isaiah 53 prophesy a suffering Messiah? How does that work? The first mountain is the mountain on which Jesus was crucified. The second mountain is Mount Zion from which he will reign. And in between there's a 2,000 year valley. That's the great mystery of scripture. That's what was missed, what was not understood. Now listen, between 5 and 6, because verse 6 starts with then, as in the next thing that happens, but there is a chasm in between these two verses. I'll read it to you in just a moment. But it's not without biblical precedent that we've read this kind of thing. It's happened before. I want you to turn quickly in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9. The book of Daniel chapter 9. Yeah, tabs, you'll probably get there faster. If you don't, just keep working at it. It's right before Hosea. Daniel chapter 9. Verse 26, we see a time jump between verse 26 and verse 27. Listen, now Daniel chapter 9, you may know this, the last, well from verse 24 down to verse 27 is a prophetic timeline that God gives Israel. He calls it the 77s. 
Your Bible may see, say weeks. That word weeks is heptad. It's not a week of days. It's sevens. Seventy time periods of seven. And if you plot this out over history, you find out very clearly that it's 77 year time periods. 70 times 7, that's 490 years that is plotted out for Israel. But just for purposes of our understanding tonight, verse 26 tells us the following. After the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. That's the crucifixion. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war, desolations, and determined. Well, that happened in A.D. 70. The sanctuary was destroyed. And then from A.D. 70 all the way up to present day, there will be war. Desolations are determined. It would continue. Now all of a sudden in verse 27, we jump up to the point, up to the time of Antichrist. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. That's one heptad, one series of seven, that is seven years. He'll make a seven-year treaty, a covenant. But in the middle of that week, that would be three and a half years, and we've already seen these three and a half year time periods talked about in the book of Revelation. In the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. On the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, or the abomination of desolation, Jesus talked about in Matthew 25 as the sign, the thing that will kick off the great tribulation which is the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. He says, even a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. In other words, this one who makes the covenant and violates it and brings about the abomination of, desecrate, uh, of desolation is Antichrist, and he himself will be destroyed. But if you're reading this through and, and taking the time to understand this prophetically, verse 26 talks about something that ended in A.D. 70. Verse 27 jumps ahead to something that will happen in the last week, the last week, the last seven-year period, which we know is the tribulation. Skip ahead to Daniel chapter 11 and look at verse 35. Daniel chapter 11 is a fantastic prophetic chapter in, in biblical prophecy. Now let me go back uh, just a bit. Verse 32, actually. Let's start right there. And this is talking about, at this point, is prophesying. And we've already seen this prophecy fulfilled about a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes, about 150 years or so before Christ. Um, one, I think 186 B.C. He, he went in and tried to take over and destroy Jerusalem. And he went into the temple and there created what was called the abomination of desolation. It was a picture of what was to come. Verse 32 says the following, By smooth words he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. This specifically talks about the Maccabees. Maccabee meaning the hammer. But about this, this period of time, you may have heard of the books First and Second Maccabees. It's in the, the Apocrypha in the Catholic Bible. Well, it's a, little historical, a literal historical time when the Maccabees fought back in guerrilla warfare against Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Syrian ruler, and won and got him out and actually re-cleansed the temple. It says in verse 33, Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many, yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. This is now referring to that transition time between the Old and the New Testament, the, the trouble the Jews had. Verse 34 says, Now when they fall, they will be granted a little help, and many will join them in hypocrisy. 
men like Herod who will say, Oh, I'm a Jew too, but really wasn't. Verse 35 says, Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end of time because it, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Now suddenly Daniel does the same thing again. Between verse 35 and 36, he jumps to the future. He jumps ahead to Antichrist. Verse 36 begins, Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god. He will magnify himself above them all. Now Antiochus Epiphanes did not do that. And that's how we know there's, there's a disconnect here. You get through verse 35. You see this character Antiochus. He's described. It fits historically. It's right on. But then all of a sudden, verse 36 says, Then the king will do as he pleases. What king? Not Antiochus. Because it's what we read in verse 36 and 37. He did not do those things. It doesn't fit him anymore. It's now jumping us ahead to another king who will come about in that last heptad, that last seven-year period, the tribulation. And that is Antichrist. Now we can go into Daniel more, but I just wanted to give you an example twice in the book of Daniel. Daniel's prophesying along about something that happens, and all of a sudden, boop, he stops and jumps ahead 2,000 years and continues on. So it's happened before in Scripture. And now back in Revelation 12, we see the same thing occur. And by the way, there's an obvious reason for these time jumps. I'll tell you in just a second because it is the mystery. Revelation chapter 12 verse 5 again says she gave birth to a son. He was caught up to God and to his throne. Then, verse 6, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. How long is 1,260 days? Three and a half years. So at this point, suddenly this woman, this woman who we know is Israel, right? It's Israel. She flees into the desert. She flees to a place prepared. She's going to be there for three and a half years. Never happened. Never happened in the history of Israel. Oh, there was the dispersion. But never did the people of Israel as a group flee into the desert for three and a half years to a place that they were protected. It hasn't happened yet. So we jump from verse 5 to verse 6 in this leap. Now why? Why this time frame? Why this all of a sudden, this, this gap that's here? It's very easy to understand when you understand that all the things that God deals with prophetically relate to Israel. And when Israel doesn't exist, the prophetic time clock stops. A.D. 70, Israel as a nation was destroyed. And God's clock, which had been played out perfectly up to that point in Daniel's 70 weeks and other places of prophecy, it stopped. Because suddenly Israel was not there. We came off of that high peak, that first coming of Christ, and we went down into the valley, which is what Jesus called the times of the Gentiles. It's the church age. The age of grace, we could call it, for it's that space in between where God says, Now, because my suffering servant has been crucified, because the judgment has been taken on his shoulders, and your sin has been paid for, now I'm giving the world time for my grace. Time to consider Christ. Time to come to full belief before he comes back as the ruling king who will rule with a rod of iron and will crush those who reject him that time span. Jesus called it again, the times of the Gentiles. It was a mystery game because it wasn't about Israel. 
The church age is not about Israel. It's an age that God inserted that the Old Testament prophets were not sure of. They could see the first coming of Christ, that first mountain. They could see the second coming of Christ. But they couldn't understand or see what was in between what God had planned all along. That the failure of the Jewish people would mean salvation for the Gentiles. By the way, the salvation of the Gentiles, ultimately, Paul tells us in Romans 11, will be the salvation of the Jewish people. It will come back around to save them as well. But Paul says this, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4. He says, The mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's the mystery. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 11. These are prophecies for Daniel's people, Israel. Revelation chapter 12, again, it's a panoramic view of the same people, of Israel. Not of the church, why? The church isn't here. Revelation chapter 12 is speaking of that time, the tribulation, when the church is already gone, already raptured, already out of the picture. But verse 6 now fast-forwards us to that time in Israel's history yet to come when she flees into the wilderness to number 4 in our notes to a great hideout. A great hideout. She fled in the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days, 42 months, also called in Revelation a time, times, and half a time. I love that phraseology because it makes perfect sense when you stop and think about it. If a time is a year, times would be two of the time, which would be two more years, and half a time would be half a year, three and a half years. It's very cool. So this time uh, stamp itself speaks of the event that will close out the history of mankind as we know it. The last three and a half years of the tribulation that Jesus called specifically the Great Tribulation. Why is it the Great Tribulation? Because at the same time that God is pouring out His wrath on planet Earth, Satan is going ballistic. He is absolutely going berserk. Why is that? We'll see in just a second. By the way, does anyone know what kicks off the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period? Can you tell me that? The signing of the treaty. You guys are good. Good, you got that. The, the peace covenant, the peace treaty that Antichrist signs with Israel kicks off, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, kicks off the tribulation. What is the thing now, a little trickier question, that kicks off halfway through the great tribulation? He breaks the covenant. Yes, and what's it called? The abomination. the abomination of desolation. Those are two things that are significant, not for us because we're going to be gone, but for people alive in the time to note or to be aware of that the covenant is signed starting the tribulation and halfway through there's a violation of that covenant, the abomination of desolation, which will be, by the way, Antichrist going into the Jewish temple and declaring himself to be God. At that point the Jews will realize once and for all we have been duped. And that's when they flee. And they will flee to a place prepared for them, a great hideout. Now Jesus talks about this, Matthew 24, verses 15 through 21. I'm not going to read it tonight. But he warns in that time, when the abomination of desolation happens, and he says, spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Oh, and by the way, when Jesus says that, when he says the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, he pulls it out of the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. He says, that's not the abomination of desolation. It's a picture. For you students of the Bible, it's a way to look and see something that happened that was at that time called an abomination of desolation, but then Jesus himself pulls it all the way up to his age and says it's something that is to come. It's not past tense. 
That happened, remember, 186 or so years before Jesus was even born onto planet Earth. And Jesus pulls it ahead and says it's for, t- for a time to come. So it will kick off the great tribulation in the middle. And Jesus warns in Matthew 24, in those verses I gave you, he warns at that time that all of the people in Jerusalem need to flee. He says, pray that it's not on the Sabbath. Why? Because they're not supposed to travel on the Sabbath. Pray that it's not during, during a festival or another time. You pray that you can get out of the city. When you see these things happening... And I believe, gang, that there are going to be people studying the Word of God like never before in the tribulation, trying to figure out all this horror that's happening in the world, coming to faith in Jesus, and reading these things. How do you know that? Well, I'll tell you in a second. I believe there are going to be a lot of people who are going to know these things, read them, and go, Oh, when I see this, I've got to flee. And when they see it happen, they will flee. They'll go to this place prepared. Now, again, some people say, well, this... This whole fleeing thing refers to A.D. 70. It refers to the fall of the temple. That's what it is, the fall of Jerusalem. And we talked about this also. We have a prophecy update on this about preterism that teaches these things. You can get the CD for that, so I'm not going to go into it tonight. But I will tell you this much. In A.D. 70, it couldn't be what's being referred to here when they flee into the wilderness. Why? Because they didn't flee to a place prepared for them. They ran in every direction. They were dispersed. They were not a group going out to a safe haven. They just ran for their lives. They just got out of there. Furthermore, Israel's flight in A.D. 70 continued for 1,900 years. They've been running ever since. They've been dispersed ever since in every nation on the face of the planet. Only since 1948 have they begun to be that nation again back in what we call the country of Israel, their homeland. And again, Jesus refers John in Revelation back to that abomination of desolation. He refers him to it 30 years after, after Jerusalem fell. Remember, Revelation is written in 95. Jerusalem fell in AD 70. And Jesus talking to John says, this is something that's going to happen. Not something that happened 25 years ago. Now, an interesting question, and I love this. Turn in your Bible to the book of Isaiah. But the question is, where do they flee? Where do the people go? Isaiah chapter 16. This is a fascinating prophecy. It's one to kind of get your arms around and to understand here. Where do the people flee? Now, do we know this for sure? No, we don't. We're going to make an educated guess here. I'm going to give you an opinion. So you can look at this and study it yourself. Feel free to disagree, but I think it's pretty compelling. Isaiah chapter 16 and verse 1. It says, Send the tribute lamb... To the ruler of the land. From Selah, by the way of the wilderness, to the mountain of the daughter of Zion. Selah. That word Selah. I've got it circled in my Bible. You might want to do the same and just write off to the side the meaning of the word Selah. The word Selah in the Hebrew is rock. Rock. It has an equivalent word, by the way, in the Greek, Petra. Selah means rock, Petra means rock, and it says, send, tribute land, send the tribute land to the ruler of the land from Selah by way of the wilderness to the mountain of the daughter of Zion, Petra, Selah, rock. Reading on verse 2. Then, like fleeing birds or scattered nestlings, the daughters of Moab will be at the fords of Arnon. Give us advice. Make a decision. Cast your shadow like night at high noon. Hide the outcasts. Do not betray the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab stay with you. Be a hiding place to them from the destroyer. 
For the extortioner has come to an end, destruction has ceased, oppressors have completely disappeared from the land. This is prophetic language that you're reading through going, whoa, something's going on, I can't figure out what exactly this is. Verse 5 says this, a throne will even be established in loving kindness. And a judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. Moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness. Well, verse 5 puts us right where it happens, doesn't it? That's Jesus. The judge who will deal with faithfulness and loving kindness and righteousness and justice. Sitting on the throne of the tent of David. That's Jesus the Christ. So we have this incredible prophecy about this place called Selah. The place for hiding the fugitive, for hiding the little fleeing birds or the scattered nestlings. Selah, which means the rock. Now, it also throws in the daughters of Moab. Well, Moab today is the place we call Jordan. Jordan is Moab. Moab is Jordan. And there's an ancient city in Jordan, a city that's called Petra, that is carved out of rock. It is an amazing city. It's the number one tourist attraction, by the way, in Jordan. Because they've, they've picked up on this. They've understood it to be amazing. You've seen it, by the way, if you've seen Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Because the mountain that they go into, when they ride the horses in through those high, high cliff mountains, down through that small passageway and in, and you see kind of that, it's carved right in the temple. That's not a Hollywood set. They filmed that at Petra. So if you've seen that, you've already seen Petra. And the idea in, verse, in chapter 16 is hide my people because my ruler is about to reign. The end has almost come. Hide my people. Hide them where? In Selah. In the place called the Rock. Where the daughters of Moab are, which would be Jordan. Petra is in Jordan. Petra is called the Rose City. Why is that? Well, it's carved out of beautiful red sandstone. It yields literally some 30 to 40 different shades of reds and pinks in the rock itself. It's supposed to be absolutely stunning. Now, we won't be going there this next year when we go to, to Israel, but maybe in the following trip or a year or two after that, I want to find a way to get into Jordan and go to Petra. Anyone who's interested in you know, jumping on that Arab bus and taking a fun ride. But the entrance to Petra... You're going, you're nuts. I know. The entrance to Petra is 12 feet wide at one point. It is one of the most defensible places in the entire world. It's a perfect place for someone to hide. It has rock walls that go from 200 feet high to as much as 1,000 feet high in some places. Petra covers 10 square miles. It's huge. It easily could, could house 100,000, hundreds of thousands of fleeing Jews. Easily there in Petra. It was built by a people called the Nabataeans. Those of you who are historical buffs, the Nabataeans in the 3rd century B.C. And it was long thought to be mythical. There were traces of it in history, but nobody had really found it or really knew where it was until Swiss explorer Johann Ludwig Burckhardt converted to Islam, supposedly. His family claims he never did. As a matter of fact, what's thought is that he converted to Islam because he was an archaeologist and he wanted to gain access to places like Petra. He had read about it. He would studied about it. He figured it existed. And he began in his travels to understand there in Jordan, not Jordan at the time, but in that region that the Arabs knew where this place was. So if he could convert to Islam to, to becoming a Muslim and he learned the language and he learned the Quran and he, he had him convinced, he convinced his guides to take him to this place called Petra. And Burkhart discovered Petra there 
And history tells us the Nabataeans themselves thought this place, only known by Arabs, was invincible. But again, listen, the Nabataeans are the ancestors of someone we just studied about this last week in our numbers study, the people of Edom, the Edomites. The people of Edom who come directly from Esau. And Obadiah chapter 1 verse 3 says the following, The arrogance of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The same pride gang that led Esau, the father of Edom, to reject his birthright for that red lentil stew, remained in the people of Edom over time, the Nabataeans, who were very proud in their building and their construction of Petra and thought themselves invincible until they were completely wiped out. Interesting. There's only one rock, gang. One rock that can truly hide us. One rock that can truly protect us. And you you and I know who that rock is. We talked about him this morning. Psalm 18, verse 2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation. My stronghold. Jesus Christ is our Petra. He is our refuge. But for the Jews... It's entirely possible that the city of Petra in Jordan today is the wilderness stronghold, the place where they will flee for protection, this 10-square-mile rock city that could easily handle thousands of people for three and a half years. Now, I said before that I'd tell you in a minute how we know that some people are going to be studying the scriptures and be aware of some of these things during that time of the tribulation. There's a Bible scholar, a reputable man by the name... W.E.B. Blackstone, who back in the previous century raised a lot of money, him and his, his uh, gang of guys, and they began to place tens of thousands of Hebrew New Testaments in earth jars, and they're hidden all over Petra. Just for this day, when this might come, when the Jews might actually go there, wouldn't that be cool? They go there, they arrive, they begin to unearth these jars and open them up, and there are New Testaments written in Hebrew, ready for them, just waiting for them to open up and get a picture of what's going on as they hide out for three and a half years. It's perfect. It's very interesting. Will that happen? I don't know. Petra is not the only city in the wildernesses that surround Judea and surround Israel to which they could flee. There are other strongholds, there are other places, and God will take them, we know now, to a place in the desert. Now, you might ask the question, well, do you think anywhere can actually withstand present-day weaponry. I mean, couldn't Antichrist just nuke Petra? Couldn't he just drop a bomb on Petra? That's an interesting question. I don't think he will. I don't think he can. I know he can't. We'll see why at the end of this chapter. Now, let's get back up to heaven. Number five in your notes. Quickly. How are we doing? Okay, hurry. Here we go. Number five. A great wrath. A great wrath. Remember I said at the three and a half year point, or three and a half year marker of the tribulation, not only will God begin to pour out all of his wrath on planet earth, but there will be another wrath going on as well. Satan is going to go ballistic. Verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war, and they were not strong enough, for there was no longer a place found for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, gang, there are those who say, wait a minute, I thought Satan was already cast out. There are those who say, as they read this, that's when Satan was cast out of heaven. No, it wasn't. No, it's not. This is a time future when Satan will be cast out. 
Satan cast out of heaven? Yeah, you know he can go there now. He can go before the Lord right now in heaven and talk to the Lord. How do you know that, Rick? Job chapter 1 and chapter 2 tells us clearly. Satan, the sons of God, were presenting themselves before the Lord and Satan was among them. And Satan goes up to the Lord and says, Hey, have you considered, or the Lord actually says, Have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, ah, he's just your servant because you've taken care of him. And they have this conversation. Where does that happen? Look in your Bibles, Job 1 and 2. It happens in heaven. Satan has access today to heaven. How else do we know that? Because he's the accuser of the brethren. We're told, in fact, in this chapter, that he accuses the brethren, you and I, day and night. Part of the reason we need an advocate in heaven. Part of the reason Jesus is in that role of mediator for every accusation that Satan throws out. Oh, look at what Sean's doing right now. Look at that, Lord. Look at that sin. And and, And Jesus, on the other hand, says, no, Lord, he's covered. That's one of mine. Oh, that's one of yours. Good. And Satan comes back and goes, yeah, but did you see what Merrill Lee did when Sean was doing what he was doing? <laughs> and Jesus goes, no, 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 no. She's one of mine. Oh, he's going against us. He's the accuser, but we have an advocate that is Jesus Christ. And we need not worry about Satan's wiles even at this time. Zechariah chapter 3, this is interesting. Zechariah chapter 3 verse 1 says that he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. Zechariah gets this picture. He sees Satan in heaven before the Lord accusing. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Satan is there. He's in heaven. He's before the Lord. And the Lord rebukes Satan regarding Jerusalem because Jesus will reign from there in God's city. What is this brand plucked from the fire? Gang, the brand plucked out of the fire, out of the ashes of its own destruction, is Jerusalem. That once again will be lifted up as the glorious city of the Lord. Now, it tells us in our passage that there's a war in heaven. Michael and his angels, and they're fighting back. And Michael fighting the dragon. Michael against Uh, Satan, Michael, his name means who is like God. Satan, his name means adversary. Satan said, I will be like God. Michael said, the Lord rebuke you. Satan against God. Michael, who is like God. Yes, Michael is for God, but Michael is so in awe of God. Michael, the great archangel. Jude 9 tells us that Michael, the archangel, disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses. But he, in his position, did not pronounced against him a railing judgment, but simply said, The Lord rebuke you. You see, Michael understood his place in the Lord's kingdom. He understood the authority was the Lord's and not his. Satan wants the authority for himself. And going back to what I said earlier this evening, there are those who see God on one side and Satan on the other. God at this strength, the strength of good, Satan the exact opposite and the strength of wrong. And it's not so. If you want a comparison for Satan, look at Michael. Because in Michael, you have an angel who believes and who trusts and who lives for the Lord, who would say, who is like the Lord? And in Satan, you have the accuser, the adversary. They are more equal. And as a matter of fact, at the beginning of Revelation chapter 20, we're going to see an angel grab hold of Satan and bind him in the abyss. God doesn't do it. God's busy with other more important things. (laughs) But an angel does it, and I believe it will probably be the angel Michael. Satan is not omniscient. He's not omnipresent. He again is more the opposite of Michael 
not of God. So Michael and his angels finally get to wage war here. And Michael throws down Satan. Michael is the one that's equal with Satan who can battle Satan. He throws him down. And this is seen as something that is to come. Satan permanently now disbarred from heaven. He's had access before. All access now is cut off. He cannot return. He cannot accuse. He cannot do anything else in heaven. He is completely shut off and thrown down to planet earth in the middle of the tribulation. And gang, Satan is all dressed up with nowhere to go. And he is hopping mad. Verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. All heaven just breaks out here and celebrates and cheers because the putrid presence of this evil being no longer has accent. There's no longer any foul stench in heaven. (laughs) Satan's gone. And he cannot return again. But what does this tell us about Satan currently? Well, currently he's the accuser of the brethren. As I said, that's why we need an advocate in Jesus. Think about this real quickly. Verse 11, what is it that overcomes the accusing of Satan? What is it that overcomes three things? The blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb that cleanses our sin. Ephesians 1.7 In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins. Also, the word of our testimony. What's that? The word of your testimony, gang, is the life that you live in the grace of God. The word of your testimony is that which is seen. As we talked about this morning, live your life, let your light so shine that men may see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. The word of your testimony, the very witness that you live out. And i got to inject this. My testimony, gang, my witness is not supposed to be about all the bad stuff that I used to be or used to do in my life. The word of my testimony is about how good God's grace is. Sometimes we get caught up in these whole witnessing uh, situations where we'll stand up and maybe have a, a night of witnessing talking about how you found Jesus or how you came to Jesus in your life. And people will just spend hours and hours here talking about how I was just so lost in sin and I was in the dregs and, and really get into it. We're like, oh, isn't it wonderful how far you've come? And God's saying, look, could we talk about the grace? <laughs> Let's not talk about what you were. Let's talk about who you are now. I'll tell you what, and Spencer, I'm going to pick on you again. I always do this. But a much greater testimony to me is not Spencer's life before, it's Spencer's life now. Because now it's a life lived in grace. For each of us, the life we live now is the life that's the witness. Now our lives are the testimony. Not then, not what we came from, what we are now, and where we're headed. That's the word of our testimony. It's all about God's grace. And by grace we have been saved through faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And also, he says, it's those who did not love their life, even when faced with death. In other words, forget about yourself. It's not about loving your life. Jesus, it says, Luke 9, 23, said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Listen, the key to self-esteem in our world is not loving yourself more. It's loving other people and loving God. And in that, you'll find self-esteem. You'll find a great joy. You'll find a great sense of who you are in Jesus. But if you focus on yourself, then you're going to go down. Because the more I focus on myself, the more I see what I do. And the more I see what I do, the more I think I'm not that such a good self after all. But when I focus on others, when I'm praising the Lord, I get lifted up. 
So it's those who do not love their life even when faced with death. So Satan is cast out. He comes down to earth and he's hopping mad. Verse 12. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea. Because the devil has come down to you. Having a great wrath. Knowing that he only has a short time. Satan's last hope, gang. Satan's last hope, he's cast out, and like a, a serpent, a dragon, completely out of control, raging and writhing, he comes down to earth, and he has one final chance. Jesus already died, already resurrected, that whole thing's lost, he cannot devour the child, but he can go after the people Israel. If he can stop Israel, even at the tail end of the, of the tribulation, man, he can blow God's prophetic plan. If he can get in there and mess it up before that millennial kingdom, before God's kingdom comes, his will be done on planet earth, then Satan has a chance, and so he's railing, he's crazy, he's going nuts on planet earth, and he knows he only has a short time. This is the time, by the way, and we're going to see Antichrist in the weeks to come here. This is the time where Antichrist, who early on in his career is demon-possessed, will become literally Satan-possessed. There's a time that the Bible tells us Antichrist will be killed, or at least it will look like he's been killed, and he will come back to life, a resurrection of sorts. It's a fascinating section coming up in the next few chapters. And Satan, at that point, enters Antichrist and completely possesses him. No one has ever been possessed like Antichrist will be possessed completely by Satan. And so this is the time that the woman Israel flees. Read on verse 14. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times, and half a time from the presence of the serpent there's our three and a half years what are these two wings now this is interesting and I'm just going to throw it out there as a thought a consideration some commentators believe that this is the deal what are these two wings of the eagle what is the symbol of America it's the eagle the eagle and there are those who looking for America in end time prophecies would say possibly and it is possible that America might at this time be involved in a massive airlift to get the Jewish people out of Jerusalem and to the place prepared for them. The wings of the great eagle. Listen gang, America is the only nation in the world to consistently stand by Israel since she returned as a nation in 1948. In fact, within hours of their declaration of independence on May 14th of that year, Harry Truman immediately recognized Israel as a sovereign nation. It blew away his entire cabinet. And even the Congress at the time, people in America were going, what? What did Truman say? He recognized Israel instantaneously upon their claim for independence. And this, by the way, is why even today America is so hated in the Middle East. Because we call Israel our friend. And the entire Middle East is anti-Israel, and so we are caught up in this anti-Semitism. America is caught up in this hatred of the Jew. But gang, take Israel out of our concern, we'd have allies all over the world. If we decided to line up with Iran and Iraq, hopefully not Iraq, but Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, some of the other, Libya, if we decided we were going to ally ourselves with them, the best political move we could make is to say, we're done with Israel. She's on her own. But I'll tell you what, the moment we do that, we have seen the last of the strength of America. This country will fall. For God says, Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you.
Remove Israel from American support, gang, and the Twin Towers would still be standing. Remove Israel from American support, and we would probably at this point be exempt from the war on terror, a war that Israel's been fighting for the last 58 years. Zechariah chapter 12 verse 2 says, Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the people around. When the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. And it will come about in that day, I'll make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth, all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. And by the way, our support of Israel is also why I believe America has been so incredibly blessed by God. Because we have supported and stood by Israel. Psalm 122 verse 6 says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. So could America be the power that airlifts Israel to safety? Well, for all of that, probably not. Probably not. Because gang, consider one other thing about America in end times prophecy. It's the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit through the church that even holds America on the path that it's on. Anything good that comes out of this country is because of the Holy Spirit's presence in the church. Anything good that happens in the world that holds back this tide of evil that is swelling that wants to explode on the world scene, it's because of that restraining influence. You can read about it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul describes it explicitly that right now there's a restraining influence. It's holding things back. That influence is the Holy Spirit working through the church. But the moment the church is caught up, pulled out, raptured, the Holy Spirit goes with the church. And this world will return to being the way it was prior to the Holy Spirit coming upon the apostles, Acts chapter 2, in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. That changed everything. Suddenly man had the ability not only to remember God but to follow God, to actually live for God. And yes, we still sin, but man, we've got the Spirit. Then the Spirit gives us the power to go forward and to live for the Lord. But that Spirit is gone after the rapture. And America, without the influence of the Holy Spirit working through the church, can you imagine what this country would be like? If not for those who are standing up for truth and standing up for God's righteousness, that's why I don't think America is going to be involved with the airlift. As a matter of fact, what I just read in Zechariah chapter 12, I think will apply to America, that all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. America as well. Well, verse 15, we're almost done. The serpent now poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. Is this literal or is it figurative now? I'm not sure. I mean, it could be a flood of water. It also could be a flood of warriors. It could be a military attack and assault going after the children of Israel. Whatever the case, this is Satan's last-ditch effort to try and destroy the, the, the primary group of Jews here to take them out. How many Jews, by the way, are going to die in this tribulation? How many will be swept away and taken out? Some of you Bible students know this. It's a third. Actually, it's two-thirds. Two-thirds will be taken out, one-third will be left. How do we know that? Zechariah 13, verse 8. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish. And the third will be left in it. I will bring the third part through the fire. I will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. And they will call on my name and I will answer them. And they will say, and I will say these are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. So one third of Israel makes it through. That's why, by the way, W.E.B. Blackstone hid all those Hebrew New Testaments. 
Because there's a third who are going to need some scriptures to study as they hide out in that place in the wilderness. But what this tells us, gang, is that Israel's greatest holocaust was not in the 40s. The greatest, most horrific slaughter of the Jewish people, of the Hebrew people, is to come in the Great Tribulation. Two-thirds will be wiped out, but a third will be saved. Again, going back to that original question, why doesn't Antichrist just nuke the joint? Why doesn't he just blow up Petra and be done with it? Because at this point, gang, Israel is supernaturally protected. They cannot be touched. Once they flee to this place of protection in, in the uh, desert, tells us he, he, he tries to, to take them out with a flood. Verse 16 tells us, But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth, and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. Now you might say, okay, that's another figurative thing of protection. Possibly. It could also be literal, because the earth has opened up its mouth to swallow up people before, hasn't it? Those of you studying through numbers just saw this happen. Korah's rebellion, Nathan, Nathan and Abiram, how they rebelled against Moses and against God. And the earth opened up and swallowed them and took them away. So we have seen this before. It's in Numbers chapter 16. Now verse 17. So the dragon was enraged with the woman. And what does he do? Well, he can't touch her, so it says he went off to make war with the rest of her children. Let's just ask this afternoon, who's that? It's anyone who's Jewish who was not living in Israel at the time, who's not in Jerusalem, because it's the rest of the woman's children. They must be Jewish people, maybe still scattered at different places throughout the earth. The dragon's going after them. He's taken off after them. And also, those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of of Jesus. So that may simply be talking about Jewish Christians at the time. It may also include tribulation saints, those who are alive at the time, the rest of her children. And by the way, this is Satan's second to last rant and rampage. There will be another one to come. I want to leave you with an encouragement tonight. Last thing, and thank you so much for hanging in there with me. This has been good. I want to leave you with this encouragement, though. We've talked about all these great things through the chapter. I want you to look back because of these great things, one of the greatest is the great eagle. The great eagle. Satan rages. He always has. He always will. And when our lives seem to be raging out of control, when we feel under attack, as often can be the case, I encourage you to focus on the eagle's wings. Focus on the eagle's wings. Verse 14 again says the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so she could fly into the wilderness and to her place where she was nourished, where she was cared for. What are these eagle's wings really, if not America? Exodus 19 verse 3 tells us, Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You your sons, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I, listen to this, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. What are these eagle's wings in scripture? Some massive airlift? No, I believe it's the Lord. The Lord protecting Israel, the Lord pulling Israel out. He will rescue them at just the right time. We read this this morning, Deuteronomy 32, verse 9. It tells us the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of a wilderness. Now listen, I love the picture. He encircled him. He cared for him. He guarded him as the apple of his eye like an eagle that stirs up its nest. 
and hovers over its young. He spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided him, and there was no foreign god with him. The eagle's wings gang in scripture are the strength of the Lord, are the power of the Lord. Last verse, Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah writes, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain a new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. And so I say to you, and I take this on myself, wait for the Lord. Let him be the one who renews your strength, and you too, like Israel in the last days, you too will be caught up on eagles' wings, caught up, and we will fly, and we will go home to be with the Lord forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Oh God, I praise you for the wonder of these things, for giving us insight and understanding. Father, I pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I pray for your people Israel. And I ask, Lord, for protection for them. I ask, Father, for the fulfillment of every single promise, every prophetic word you have ever given for your people Israel. I pray this, Father, knowing in faith that you're going to do it. You're going to bring it about. But I pray it also knowing, Father, as David wrote in Psalm 122, this is our mandate. As your children, as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, that our mandate is also to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, to pray for the people of Israel, that they, your people, might find their salvation also in Jesus. And Father, if there's anyone among us who is weary or tired or broken down, not just from this lesson, Father, but because of things going on in life, I pray, dear Lord, that you will lift us up on eagles' wings and give us your strength, the strength that doesn't come from the heart of man. It comes from you, Father. Thank you for your precious blood and your love. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.